0: because of the nature of the text that we have in front of us i have a few extra sort of comments to make introductory wise and so i didn't want for you to feel like you would be standing forever because you might have felt that way in a moment on friday evening two nights ago i had the the joy and the privilege of getting to officiate a wedding mark hallman and carly taylor got married friday evening mark and carly both joined our congregation about a year ago, so many of you know them already, and uh, they are not here today. They're off on a honeymoon somewhere, and that's great for them, and uh, so when they come back, be sure, when you see them, to offer your congratulations and your well wishes and blessings for their marriage. Their wedding was, as you can imagine, beautiful. It was A beautiful picture of grace and joy and love and perseverance, even, as any wedding and marriage ought to be. For me, though, there was a little bit of irony, kind of dark irony, because I knew what was coming on Sunday morning, of course. And what I had spent my week in, in the days leading up to their wedding. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is not what you would typically spend your days in leading up to officiating a wedding. Because this is exactly the opposite of what happened on Friday night. Revelation, this book that we've been studying, and if you're visiting with us this morning, please know that this is not just a one-time sort of sermon. This is a part of a series. We've been leading up to this for quite a while. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic in its genre. And a part of what that means is that it brings to you A whole string of striking images that are intended to get your attention and to communicate something to you that you ought to know, but that maybe you've missed. And this passage here is no different in that regard, but I want to offer fair warning to the the more sensitive souls among us. And I do not say that sarcastically. I, I say that with all good intentions to the more sensitive souls among us and then also to the parents among us whose kids might be here in the worship service still some of them are off to worship training and that's fine but i offer you fair warning because this passage is rated pg and maybe worse and in fact the more you read it and the more you think about it the worse that it gets i guess you could say for many people this sort of passage of scripture is not only bizarre and mysterious, but it's even horribly offensive and deeply discomforting. And I'm sensitive to that, but I don't apologize for it. Rather, I I lead into this passage of Scripture with this truth that we have to keep in mind, and that is this. For our good, the Word of God does not hide... That which is bent on our destruction. For our good, the Word of God does not hide that which is bent on our destruction. Now, remembering the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, these characters that we've met in recent weeks here, we've seen there that they are, as it were, a counterfeit trinity. So also here, Babylon, the metaphorical city, and there are a number of mixed metaphors in this passage. Babylon is a counterfeit church to which people come to worship. She is a counterfeit bride for the second person of the counterfeit trinity. And that's who this is that we are going to meet here. And she is attractive, she's alluring, and she is evil. Now, quickly to you young Christians, before I read the passage, I want to say a word to you young ones. You know who you are. Six, seven, eight-year-olds who maybe didn't go to worship training. Nine, ten, eleven-year-old. Thirteen, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. You know who you are. You young ears here. I want to say something to you because there are some striking things in this passage and in this sermon that don't seem to belong in church. And so I want to sort of dispel a myth for you. This is not a myth that your parents have intended to teach you, but it's a myth that we as Christians, when we gather together, we kind of create this myth, maybe unintentionally even. And the myth is this, that the reason that you come to church is to dress up and look nice and behave well in public. That's the myth. We've, we kind of gather together and we create this cotillion sort of atmosphere. There's a time and a place for that. The church is not it. That's a myth. The reality is, rather, that you come to church in order to praise God, who not only created you, but who calls you to turn away from the deadly deceptions of this world. And that's what we see in this passage before you on page 6 of your bulletin. I'll read it. If you have a Bible, you'll see that there's a lot more to it than this, but these are excerpts from it. This is God's Word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, "'Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. "'And I saw the woman, drunk, with the blood of the saints, "'the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. "'When I saw her, I marveled greatly. "'And the angel said to me, "'The woman that you saw is the great city "'that has dominion over the kings of the earth. "'After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, "'having great authority, "'and the earth was made bright with his glory.' And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants." Will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us and we recognize the strangeness of this passage. Would you help us to understand? Give us your spirit so that we can know what is wise and true and grant that we by faith might follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1989, I took a train ride from Madrid, Spain, to Lisbon, Portugal. I was studying abroad that fall. And the course of our, our study program allowed for lots of latitude to enjoy the culture of Spain, to travel a bit on the train. And so sometimes on a Friday morning after class got out, we'd take off with a backpack with a change of clothes and a toothbrush and head for the train station. On this particular Friday, we did that. We were headed to Portugal. And so in the train station, one of my traveling companions was in a particularly celebratory mood, and so she decided that she'd go to the gift shop and buy something to celebrate. Now, none of us at 20 years of age knew much about wine, I guess, but she found a bottle of wine. She did know that port wine comes from Portugal, and so we were headed to Portugal, so she grabbed a $5 gift shop-grade bottle of wine. Port wine, as I understand it, is supposed to be sweet this bottle was not sweet we got onto the train and and sat in our booth and she popped open the the cork and began to pass the bottle of wine around for the celebration and took a swig and her face turned sour the next person did the same and all of our faces were sour across the aisle from us was an older woman disheveled a stranger to us who was watching us amused at these Americans and their immature energy. She recognized, I guess, that we didn't like what we were tasting, and she reached across the aisle in broken English, give. My friend reached the bottle across to her, and she took it, and she raised it up to her lips, and with a few big swigs, the bottle was empty. She passed it across the aisle again. And with a crooked smile, she turned back to the window and leaned against it and fell asleep for the rest of the ride. (laughs) The bizarre imagery of Revelation that we have seen runs the gambit of so much, doesn't it? We've seen angels and wild beasts. We've seen heavenly elders and giant locusts with scorpion tails. We've seen a cosmically pregnant woman in the heavens and a seven-headed dragon in hot pursuit. We've seen a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. And as this revelation from God to John reveals reality in its poetic terms, now we have this, a wine-guzzling, loose-living woman. It's a strange image for our minds, but she is no stranger to our lives. The 17 verses that we've just read together are a summary of the 47 verses that actually make up the entirety of this section of Scripture. Of course, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can see what else is there. Not only, though, here does God want for John and us to know what's obvious in it, that judgment actually is coming, he wants us also to know what he's judging He's judging the cancer of Satan's abomination and impurity that have hijacked God's previously perfect creation. And he's judging all who would hitch their wagon to that crooked star. To help us to see it clearly, once again, the Lord has given to us a picture, a painted picture, of something that I'm sure Satan himself would never choose for his own marketing campaign. He's given us a prostitute, a harlot. He's given us a sloppy, drunk, bling-wearing lush who will say and do anything in order to persuade you to her ways. He's showing us a counterfeit bride for whom wine is a metaphorical poetic tonic of choice now this is no commentary against wine so don't mishear that I I don't expect for you to mishear that but I want you to hear me say this is no commentary against wine it's a poetic picture and we can understand the identity of this counterfeit bride better when we see the wine that she actually provides The angel comes to John after the seven bowls of wrath are complete at the end of chapter 16. And and here this angel comes in our passage here, and he begins to speak to John. It's as if he's thinking of John. You look a little bewildered, John. I know you've seen some stuff that have thrown you off just a bit here, fella. You may think that you've seen some stuff at this point, but I've got something else that I've got to show you. And he offers John a little preview of what's to come. He says, I'm going to show you the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. What a seedy picture. I mean, this is just not right for Sunday school, is it? Certainly not the cotillion brand of Sunday school that we often assume and kind of, put on as we gather together as Christians on Sunday morning, dressed well and cleaned up as we are. But God here in this picture, in grace, is actually holding smelling salts under our nose, as it were, and saying to us, wake up. Wake up and see the reality of the cancer that plagues my creation. She is arrayed in luxury She carries a golden cup that's full of the wine she wants for you to drink. It's full of abominations, and that's what her name is. Her name is abomination. And those who dwell on earth are drunk on this wine that she provides. In fact, chapter 18, verse 3, tells you that all nations have drunk this wine. And the many waters where she sits, it's a a picture, a poetic picture. The many waters where she sits, the angel will later tell John, Are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, her influence is widespread across the world. But we've seen her before in redemptive history. And you have to realize this. We've seen her before. If you know some of Scripture, John, I expect, surely recognized her when he saw her. From where? Well, our figurative name is Babylon, of course, and and John knew Babylon. He would have gone back in his mind into the Old Testament and remembered the Old Testament enemy to which God exiled his rebellious people. Daniel the prophet lived in Babylon. But even before that, in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, which Cameron preached to us some weeks ago, the Tower of Babel was that gathering of God's, not God's people, but all of God's creation, as people who came together and began to build a city, build a culture, which in itself is good. That's what God designed us to do. But they built it for their own memorial, for their, as a testimony to their own power and strength. But even before that, the seeds of Babylon had been planted. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, after killing his brother Abel, the infamous Cain, the Bible tells us, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in a land to the east of Eden, and there he built a city. Now again, his building of the city is not the problem, but rather he went away from the Lord to do it. That's the problem, and the generations that followed after him began to build more and more things. They built a culture, which again is good. God made us to build culture. But they did so on a trajectory away from God, building their own creation apart from the creator. And so the seeds of Babylon were planted, that great city of man. And it's not so much actually a city as it is a system, a system which early in Genesis would eventually lead to the the judgment of the flood as God would purge it away. And that's foreshadowing of what he will do again. But where else do we see her in history? We see her in the book of Proverbs, don't we? The whole book of Proverbs is a letter from a father to his son, helping his son to distinguish between two things. Lady wisdom on the one hand and the woman folly on the other. And that woman is loud and seductive in the book of Proverbs. We'll come back to that in a moment. Where else do we see her? We see her in the prophets of the Old Testament. You heard from Isaiah 47 a moment ago. Isaiah gives us this picture of the cancerous parasite that had infested Israel. He gives it as a metaphor of a young woman, if you if you listened carefully to the reading. It was a young woman, the daughter of Babylon, who pretends to be innocent. And yet she's a lover of pleasures and of deception. She's the enemy. She's, Isaiah says, a prostitute. But why a prostitute? What does that mean, after all? Why would the Bible give us this image of a prostitute to to communicate this to us. It is, by the way, not intended as a condemnation of women who are enslaved in that institution. That is not what this is about. It is rather about the institution of prostitution. What is it? Well, it's a worldwide phenomena, so it will communicate to any and all cultures because it's present all around the world. It's an exploitation that's common to all cultures and languages. And some call it the oldest profession known to man. It's actually not. A friend of mine pointed out that gardening is actually older than prostitution. But everybody knows of it. What is it? We tend to think of prostitution in in sexual terms, and it certainly is that. But prostitution is simply the use of what's good to do what's evil. It's the use of God's good creation of sex in order to do the evil of power grabbing and self-gratification. It's the use of God's good creation of material things to do the evil of self-medication and self-promotion. It's the use of God's good provision of wealth even to do the evil of manipulation of power and influence and sitting in luxury. It's the use of God's good provision of opportunity and position to bring about the evil of oppression. That's what prostitution is, and that's the wine that she provides. It's what she wants you to drink. In fact, chapter 18 describes a bit more of it, describing her fall her judgment in terms of a fire and burning. And there in chapter 18, it's not on page 6 of your bulletin, but if you look at it in your Bible, you can see that various characters begin to mourn her burning. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the shipmasters, they all stand back as though they're watching a house burn. And they're spectators of sorts, and they're mourning in a certain way, but not for her. It becomes clear as you read it that they have no love lost in her demise. They don't care about her. She wasn't lovable. It is rather the benefits they gain from her that they miss. The kings mourn the loss of the sex and luxury they gained from her. The merchants mourn the loss of the cargo, the things, the material possessions and wealth that they gained from her. The shipmasters mourn the loss of the opportunity and the worldly prosperity that they gained from her. But they don't care about her. She does have a name of mystery, but it's not just Babylon the Great. Her name is Luxury and Prosperity. Her name is wealth and possession. Her name is power and position. Her name is lust and self-gratification. Her name is the American dream. I mean, this country, over the course of the ages of the world, the church has been fleeing from the dragon as it's pursued her for her destruction. And some hundreds of years ago, a part of the church Landed in this country, on this piece of land. And it seems over the course of history, we've kind of walled ourselves off to protect from the dragon. But what we don't realize is we've caged ourselves in with the prostitute. And this is where we live. She is like a mighty dragon, smog from the Hobbit movie, which surely you've seen by now. She is death. And she is a thief because there's also the wine that she steals. This woman is so striking in appearance. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls that you may forget to notice her ride. Did you notice verse 3? I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. She has a partner in crime, doesn't she? And, and who is it? Who is it? Well, it's a seven-headed scarlet beast, and so that should immediately make you think of that dragon, the, the, the red dragon with seven heads, and surely Satan is very deeply involved in this, but there's something even more specific. She's full of blasphemous names, this beast is. This is the sea beast, the first beast On whom the dragon called for help, who came from the sea, full of blasphemous names. This is worldly government insofar as it's arrayed and postured against the work of God in the world. And as these two party on through history, she, with the help of this beast, is stealing a certain macabre sort of wine. Verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So just like a prostitute is a tool used by a manipulator who seeks power and control and wealth, so also this Babylon is a tool used by a manipulator who seeks the destruction of the church and all that's good because they stand in the way of all that she wants to do. Recently, we've seen the newspaper headlines in our city about a so-called adult entertainment business that is planning to come and will come to the convention center downtown for its annual convention. You've seen the headlines about it. The, The mayor and the city council have opposed it. It's an adult entertainment business, or so they say. There's actually nothing adult about it. It's quite juvenile. There's nothing entertainment about it. It's actually enslavement, and it's not a business. It's actually theft. But it portrays itself as these things in order to legitimize itself. The mayor and the council have opposed it, and you and I both know their opposition is in vain because of something that we call the First Amendment, freedom of speech and stuff, freedom of religion and assembly and and our expression Now, I'm not opposed to the First Amendment. I'm a pastor, after all. I'm I'm all for the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly. We benefit mightily from that, don't we? I'm not opposed to those things. But the freedom of the gospel is not the freedom to sin. It is rather the freedom to serve, to serve God and to serve God other people. It's the freedom to glorify God with all that we do. It's the freedom to build what's good and right and true in this world. The manipulator may call it First Amendment rights, but God calls it something else. He calls it destruction. He calls it theft. He calls it death. The letter of Proverbs describes it really well. This is part of that letter from father to son. It goes like this. My son, keep my words and live. Call wisdom your sister and insight your friend. They will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. I've seen among the simple a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She seizes him and kisses him. With much seductive speech, she persuades him until he follows her. But he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, this is a striking image for a Sunday morning, I know. And if you're a visitor with us, I understand the discomfort of it. But it's a fitting image, though, because this counterfeit bride aims to draw people in through meeting a desire or even a a perceived need that runs so deep that people are willing to engage in very risky behavior in order to fulfill it. In offering this wine that she provides, she's looking for a wine to steal the death of souls. Now, there have been more Christian martyrs i understand in the past hundred years than in all the centuries previous combined there has been a lot of blood shed lots and lots of blood and she is drunk but i think maybe the question for you and me is how is she drinking your blood I think for us, it's not so much a matter of a knife to the throat. We don't so much fear that in our day, in our place, in our time right now. Perhaps that could come. Lord willing, it won't, but it very well could. For us, maybe it's not so much a knife to the throat, but maybe a mosquito on the skin. She's after blood, and she's going to get it. This worldly wine, after all, that she offers is everywhere. I mean, Think about the sexual temptation that we know of that proliferates our culture. Parents are always scrambling. You young ones, you need to know and understand. Your parents are always scrambling, figuring out how am I going to protect my kids from this part of the cup of wine she wants them to drink. Wives are often suspicious of their husbands as they walk through the mall. And husbands, men, husbands are not... Men are always tempted by the things that are thrown around the culture. It's just everywhere. You know it. I don't need to dwell on that. What about wealth and possessions? You might think, well, I'm not rich. I don't need to worry about that part. It's not me. I don't have that temptation, but not so fast. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you have or if you have not. The question is, is it your lover do you bathe yourself in the things that you have, protecting yourself from the discomforts of the world around you? Or do you daydream about the things that you don't have but wish that you did? Is your vocation, what you do, is it, is it driven by the redemption that you know that you can bring through it? Or is it driven by the money you know you can make from it? Wealth and possessions, are they... Your lovers? What about achievement and reputation? There's a whole mixed bag of stuff in this cup she has to offer you. Do you think that you have more to offer to God because you have a certain credential on the wall and you're willing to pay any price to get it? Or do you think that you have less to offer to God because someone has exposed something about you and now the social media shame is cruel? She's after blood and she's going to get it in one way or another. Now, does all this mean that we as Christians just simply can't enjoy the good things that God has made? Should we go hide in a cave? No. Of course not. Many people, many Christians, well-intended, have made the mistake of thinking that a destitute life in a cave devoid of all comforts and things... And rather, filled with self-denial would bring them close to God. But that just never works. It never has. No, because once he'd refused Satan's temptations in the wilderness, Jesus himself came feasting and celebrating. He was accused of being a, drug, a drunkard and a glutton, wasn't he? No, you are in this world, and it's still God's world. It's filled with his good things. But it's also infected with cancer, and therefore you're not of this world. But there's good news here, of course, as well. Because just as we saw last week with the seven bowls, there will be no hung jury at the end of time. Because the wine that she receives, of course, is judgment. The cancer will be destroyed. The angel came to John at the beginning of this passage not to intimidate him, but to rather encourage him. See what he, he said. He said, come, John, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And you remember the, how the scenes of Revelation, the visions, run parallel with each other. They overlap a lot, and yet they make progress as they go along. In the seventh bowl of wrath, in the previous chapter, this statement was made. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Now, cities is a metaphorical term, I think, referring to the system of evil in the world. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. She will drink that wine. Now, chapter 17 There's a reading that I didn't include in your passage in the bulletin. It's about rulers and kings who will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. But then the angel explains something interesting there in that passage. The angel tells John this. He says, "...the ten horns and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire." Because God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Ultimately, the tools of Satan are self-destructive. In frustration, at some point, Satan is going to cast her aside because she becomes useless to him. He doesn't care about her. He just wants the power of being king And there already is a king who won't allow it. So chapter 18 begins with another angel coming with great authority and a mighty message. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the language that follows is language of fire and destruction. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now, I don't know all the explanations and understandings of the fire. Is it metaphorical? Is it literal? How is this thing going to work? The mystery of Revelation, we don't know these things. We only know that God is going to work these things out. But what seems clear to me is that it's preparing for a new creation. We're well on our way towards that in the book of Revelation at this point, aren't we? There's still a little bit of nasty work to do. But a new creation is on its way and all that's not fireproof is going to be purged. In Noah's terms, it's going to be washed away as God begins again. Now, a little spoiler for the future, as we begin to think about new creation, think about it not in terms of you with little wings on your back and a harp sitting on a cloud in the sky. That is not the case. That's not what heaven is. This world God created and he called it good, he will one day call it good again. And it will be a world Much as you know it now, but far different than you can even begin to imagine. He's preparing for a new creation. And the great multitude in heaven will celebrate. This is the good news. God will not leave this cancer to destroy what he himself has created and called good. The others, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, they'll be destroyed too. And then at the end of Revelation, there will be another city. You know the end of the book, perhaps. Another city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven. It's a beautiful picture. We'll get there soon enough. But it's a beautiful picture of the new city of God's creation, which will last forever. But here, even as there was a twisted sense of mourning from those who loved Babylon for her riches, there's also a redemptive sense of warning. For those who love the one true God. And I'll finish with this as we wrap it up. In chapter 18, verse 4, here it is. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Now, a major theme of the book of Revelation for Christians, application-wise, is this. You must endure. You must endure all that this world throws at you. The Lord says, I am with you, but you must endure. But in the enduring, you also must grow in wisdom so that you can see this woman. You must grow in maturity so that more and more you can recognize her when you see her because she is in your neighborhood And she knocks on your door all the time. You must know her when you see her. And when you see her, say no to her. Come out from her, he calls us. Now, that doesn't mean that you should stop loving all that you know is good. You know what's good. Don't stop loving what's good, the good gifts that God has given But see that you worship not the gifts, but the giver who gave them. Come out of her, he calls us to do. Use your life, use your calling, use your vocation to build what will stand against her. And what will, rather than being burned up in the end, what will persevere and last to the glory of God. Now, as as you come to the table this morning, in just a moment, you'll come to the communion table, and you'll get a simple preview of an infinitely better offering. The feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. That's what you come to this table for. You come to gain a preview, just a little glimpse into heaven to see that what God offers to you is a feast feast that's good and true and right and beautiful. It's a feast that you can trust, one that is already here but not yet complete. And so God calls you to come out from her and to endure what the world offers, to reject the folly of this woman and to anticipate the new heavens and the new earth, the new city, the new Jerusalem, where there is life and truth forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would...